So the reading can be taken from John chapter 20, beginning at verse 1. And you can find the reading in your church Bibles on page 1089. John chapter 20, verse 1 to 18. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the, t the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but didn't go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned round and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realise that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell him where you, put, where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Lord. Well, do keep that uh, passage, that account by the Apostle John, who um, in the reading refers to himself either as the other disciple or as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And it's an account where we uh, first discover the empty tomb and then we read of the first encounter with the risen Christ. So, if you'll have the page, the, the passage open, and if you find the outline um, on the uh, song sheet helpful, then do use that. 
The late Scottish psychologist R.D. Lang once famously said that life is a, san is a sexually transmitted condition with a 100% mortality rate. These last 12 to 15 months in our own church family have um, seen more church members die than I think at any other period in the last 30 or 40 years. Not large numbers, thankfully, but certainly two or three times more than the usual. As a consequence, for our many of us, we have been affected by the death, by the loss of a friend or a loved one. Responses have ranged from deep grief as the result of the loss of a life partner and best friend to mild sadness that someone is not where they usually sat on a Sunday. They've gone. Of course, such sorrow is tempered by the Christian hope of the resurrection to eternal life and the reunion of the people of God in the new creation. But there is still the pain of separation, albeit temporary. The Christian hope is not a case, though, of wishful thinking or of keeping our fingers crossed. There is evidence, which we'll look at this morning. There is personal experience of acting on that evidence. And there is the truth that one day we will have it confirmed that we made the right call in this life by committing our eternal destiny to the risen Christ. So let us today, though, refresh our memories of the events of the original Easter Sunday, the evidence of the empty tomb, and the eyewitness accounts of seeing, touching, talking, even eating with the risen Christ. Of course, time doesn't permit an exhaustive treatment, but let's look at just one person's experience that Sunday morning around 30 AD outside the walls of Jerusalem. That person is Mary Magdalene, who was the first to see both the empty tomb and the risen Jesus. Now, if you are making this stuff up about the risen Jesus, not just returned from the dead, but actually with a transformed body, tangible and yet able to appear and disappear at will, this is certainly not how you would start. In the first century world, women in Judaism were not considered reliable witnesses and their testimony was not admissible in court. Here, though, a woman is the first person to see both the empty tomb and the risen Jesus. And she is then directed to report that and what he says to the other disciples. So if you think Christianity is chauvinist, you might need to think again. This is an affirmation of women when at the time women were thought unreliable. If you had made it up, you'd be much more inclined to have um, used the two principal apostles, Peter and John, as your primary eyewitnesses. Or you might have even decided to use Nicodemus or Joseph of Arimathea, who were, you know, clearly being drawn to Jesus, um, and perhaps they might be thought of as being more objective. And certainly if you went for a woman, 
you'd go for one with a pretty impeccable reputation, his mother. But John doesn't. Why not? Perhaps because this is what actually happened. Now, Mary, we know a little bit about. She was called Miriam Magdala, which is usually assumed that she is Mary from Magdala, which is a little village on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. There's no biblical information to indicate whether that was her home or whether it was her birthplace. But most Christian scholars assume that it is a place called Migdal today. It is at the point where the Gennesaret River enters into the lake. It's the place where Jesus um, landed after the Sermon on the Mount recorded by Matthew. And Luke tells us in chapter 8 of his work that Mary from Magdala was one of a group of women who were with Jesus and the 12 disciples and who supported them, quote, out of their own means. Although a sizable group, two others are named, Susanna and Joanna, who is the wife of Chusa, who was the manager of King Herod's household. In medieval times, she was identified as the Mary of John chapter 12, who anointed Jesus with expensive perfume, the value of which was the equivalent to the average annual income of a labourer. She did that the week before he died. But there's no actual biblical support for that connection. Nor is, of course, there any biblical or early Christian support for the idea that Jesus was married and that he was married to Mary Magdalene. Such notions are, of course, the invention of more recent works of fiction. What we do know is that she stayed by the cross to the bitter end and that she followed the funeral cortege to the garden and she was there when Jesus was buried. Jesus had been laid laid in a rock-hewn tomb belonging to Joseph of Arimathea, one of the ruling council, who, like another council member, Nicodemus, had been drawn to Jesus. They were softening. They could see, like the Roman soldier in the drama, that there was something about him that had a ring of truth, even though they couldn't quite as yet put their finger on quite what it was. So the women had gone with Joseph to the tomb to lay Jesus out and perform the burial rites of which were their customs, which included covering the body with spices. But Jesus, by dying at three o'clock in the afternoon, and then you've got the kind of rigmarole of being getting permission to take him down from the cross, checking that he's dead, you know, saying that the tomb is okay for him to be buried in, all that. That was really not quite enough time to get all that was needed to be done, done. So they had to stop at 6 p.m. when the Sabbath started, when such work could not take place. So they returned at the earliest opportunity, which would have been uh, needed to be light so they can see in clearly. And although the Sabbath had ended at 6 p.m. on Saturday, that would have been dark. So daybreak on the Sunday was their earliest opportunity. 
Mary uses the word we. She is not alone in John 22. And we know from Matthew and Mark that she was accompanied by Salome and the other Mary. And Luke adds that it was also Joanna and others. So quite a little group. So what we have is some 36 hours later, after the tomb had been sealed and guarded, she and other women returned and found the tomb open. The stone had been removed from the entrance. And she jumps to the immediate conclusion that grave robbers have been at work and the body is gone. Grave robbing was such a problem in that part of the world that the Romans a few years afterwards made it a capital offence to do so. She ran back to alert Peter and John. She said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. Then they raced to the tomb. John saw in and believed, verse 8. Quite how he believed, we don't know. But he says that they hadn't understood it from the Old Testament at that particular point, that the Christ must rise from the dead. Perhaps, though, he recalled Jesus' frequently expressed purpose in his ministry, that the Son of Man must suffer, be put to death, and on the third day rise again. And then they return to their homes to tell others. Mary presumably had followed them at a much more leisurely pace. And by the time she had arrived, they'd gone and she was alone. So she had been among the first to leave, well, among the last to leave the cross and the first to arrive at the empty tomb. And then we pick the account up at verse 11. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken away my Lord, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. You see, she's sure that either grave robbers have taken the body or possibly the owner of the tomb has changed his mind and got the gardener or the cemetery assistant to move it to a less prestigious tomb. Whatever the reason, she wants to know where his body is so that they can honour him with these last funeral rites. Verse 14. At this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realise that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him, and cried in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And then Jesus gave her three instructions. Don't go and tell. That's not a sentence with a meaning. <laughs> Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them. I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. 
And Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord, she exclaimed. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Well, John paints there two little dramatic cameos. The first was Mary weeping. She is grief-stricken because the man she had followed for most of the previous three years had gone. And the second cameo is of Mary clinging to him. So grief-stricken at her imagined loss, she does not want to let him go now that she has got him back. But both actions were a mistake. She thinks he's gone, and so she's in despair, and she thinks she's got him, but it's only by him going that he will be able to be everywhere to everyone which will result in personal joy and hope. So there is no need to weep and she should not cling to him. Here her weeping is very dramatic. It is a sign of her despair and yet her Lord is resurrected and triumphant. He is alive but she is unaware. Twice, first by the angel and secondly by the man she thought was the gardener, she is asked, why are you weeping? Probably with a tone implying that there's no need to be. She had, be, she had seen the brutality of the crucifixion, the finality of the burial, and she'd not been able to pay her last respects by anointing his body for burial as a final tribute. And now she thinks grave robbers have committed sacrilege. And she is alone at this point, abandoned by the other women and the two leading apostles. But chiefly she is weeping because she thought she had lost the only man who had ever treated her with dignity, understood her, loved her and respected her. He had released her from a way of life in which she had been trapped and could not of herself free herself. She had new life, but now she thought she was facing the future without him. She'd been in grief and despair since he died and left her. But Jesus had not left her, as she thought. On the contrary, he was there at her side, but risen, but she didn't know it. If only she had known who he was, if she'd seen him, her tears would have dried up instantly or have turned to tears of joy. But her whole mindset was not expecting to see him risen. And in the darkness of just before dawn, she doesn't look to recognize his face. I wonder if you see something of Mary Magdalene in your own life. Why is there weeping in our world today? Is it to do with the past? Something that you've said or done? Some moral failure? Something shameful? Something which has left you with a legacy of guilt? There's much in scripture about our grieving over sin. Is it to do with the present, something that is a temptation that is so overwhelming you? Or some responsibility which you bear alone, but which is meant to be lifted? Or is it fear 
of the unknown future, whether now in this life or after it. Well, there is no need to weep. There is no need to be afraid. Jesus is alive and closer than we think. We just have to recognize him when he is speaking to us. The temptations may remain, the responsibilities may give cause for concern, but the resurrection has brought us a new life. The resurrection vindicates the work of the cross. It shows that God the Father does accept the death of his Son as an effective punishment for our sins. It works, and sin can now be forgiven. As the BBC Religious Affairs editor wrote in the Radio Times this week, Easter is for grown-ups. The Christian faith speaks of Christ's death on the cross as an atoning sacrifice for all sin and wrongdoing, and his resurrection, the opportunity to start again. Did you notice at the very beginning in verse 1 that the resurrection took place on the first day of the week and not on the third day, as often predicted? Why was that? It's because that was the day of the start of a new creation. It was, of course, the third day after he died, but it was the first day of the week. The original creation, the old creation, started at the beginning of the week. And so the new creation, which will culminate in a new heaven and a new earth, where there will be no more tears, no need to weep, as Mary Magdalene wept. And now Mary's second mistake, that of clinging on to the Lord. She's spoken to by name and immediately recognizes the voice. It was not the gardener as dawn was breaking. It was Jesus. And she fell at his feet and clung to him like a, a fearless rugby fullback. She hugged him to herself. Having thought she lost him, she was not going to let it happen again. But Jesus said to her, Do not hold on to me, because I have not yet ascended. Go to my brothers and tell them I am returning to my father. Now that is a puzzle for some people. Later that same evening, Luke reports in his account, Luke 24, 37 and following, of Jesus appearing to the other disciples. They were startled and frightened, he writes, thinking they saw a ghost. Jesus said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your mind? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me. And see, a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. And then he ate a piece of fish which they gave him. And then a week later, the Apostle John, chapter 20, 24 and following, reports that Thomas, who'd not been with them the week before, and who'd missed seeing the risen Jesus, but he'd heard about it and he had his doubts, he was with them when Jesus appeared again, and he was invited by Jesus to literally take his fingers and actually put them in the wound in Jesus' side. So why does Jesus invite others to handle him and yet forbid Mary to hold him? 
Well, the answer is that handling and holding are different actions. The apostles are invited to handle him in order to verify that he was not a ghost. The reason Mary was forbidden to hold on to him was that her gestures symbolized the wrong kind of relationship. The best translation would perhaps be, stop clinging on to me. She had to learn that she could not presume the old familiar friendship she had previously enjoyed. It would not be the same relationship as before. Once he had ascended, been exalted to the right hand of God the Father and enthroned in splendor, a new relationship would become possible. One not with the Jesus of Nazareth, but one with the cosmic Christ. Of course, the human Jesus of Nazareth was also divine. And of course, the cosmic Christ does have a risen, resurrected body. But by his departure, she could join with other believers worshipping him as he rules the universe. So we see in her action both her strength and failure in her love, her strength in eager devotion, but her weakness in expressing her devotion in the wrong way by clinging on to him. So what lessons are there for us to take away? As we picture Mary weeping and uh, Mary clinging, we see contrasting mistakes that she made, and perhaps we make today. She wept because she thought she had lost him altogether. She clung to him because she thought she had got him back just as he had been before, and wanted to keep him as she'd known him. Both mistakes... Both were mistakes in opposite and complementary ways. She hadn't lost him. He was risen. He was alive. But in order for her and others to know him all the time everywhere, she had to let him go. Christianity is personal. It is a relationship with Jesus, and she was right in that. But as Christ... He has so much more, he was so much more and is so much more than that. She was tempted to have a domesticated, casual relationship with Jesus. But now she had to realize his eternal and not simply temporal status. He was now risen, ascended, exalted, the Lord of the universe, with whom it was not possible to be either equal or casual. As he'd said on the night before he died in John 14, he must go to prepare a place for them, to send the promised spirit to take his place in their lives and ultimately to return and take them with him. She hadn't lost him. He would make provision through the apostles recording his word and the provision of his spirit, both of whom would then live in the lives of his followers. He was still personally accessible but as Christ, he was King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and the appropriate response to Christ was to fall prostrate at his feet in humble adoration, as Thomas did a week later when he cried in recognition, my Lord and my God. Let's pray.
let us think. There is no need to weep in despair as if there is no Jesus to be known or to help us. He is alive, evidence that God approved of his death for our sins. Pasts can be forgiven. Temptations and anxieties of the present can be dealt with by his help. And our future can be assured. But we are not to restrict our remembrance to this earthly Jesus. He is the cosmic Christ, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the ruler of the universe. And his word and his spirit can now live within us forever. Accessed like Thomas through humble repentance and submission to him as our Lord and Saviour and God. Help us, Lord Jesus Christ, this Easter to appreciate both your accessibility to the penitent and your steadfast love to those who submit to you as Lord. Amen. Amen.